0: Take your Bibles. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter twelve. We began chapter twelve a couple weeks back. We want to finish that this morning. Prepare uh, a little bit. We'll be taking the Lord's table, but before we do that, we want to continue on our Bible series on the Gospel of John, working our way through uh, little by little as we have been doing for several weeks now, and you can go back online and uh, listen to those that we've done in the past, but just working our way sequentially through the gospel of John. John 20 verse 30 is a reminder, we haven't, uh, again, been in the gospel of John, Uh, we've had a few breaks and done some different things, but in John 20 verse 31, towards the end of the book that the gospel the apostle John wrote, he gives us the reason of why he wrote what he did. And he says, these are written, this is on the back end now as he's wrapping up his book, these things are written so that you may do what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah. That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. And that believing, which isn't just you agree to facts, but believing is really, we could put the word trust in there, by trusting in Christ that you may have life in His name. That's why John wrote what he's writing. He has a purpose. He has an intent. He has a thesis. He's writing to draw and lead people to faith in Jesus. And so this morning as we, as we look in chapter 12, we're going to uh, kind of continue in that with that goal that the Apostle John wrote. Uh, several weeks back, I think it was around the uh, on May 6th, a uh, event that was a worldwide event. Now, Americans may not have gotten as excited about it, but it still was a lot of uh, attention given to the coronation of King Charles III. The poor man is 74 years old, and finally he gets to be king, right? Right? Uh, and uh, that was a big event, Now I don't know about you, I didn't get up at three in the morning to watch it live, that, I, you know, I appreciate it, and probably, uh, like some of you the last several years, uh, I never really had any interest in all that, but I think through watching the series The Crown, how many of you know what I'm talking about, The Crown on, is it Netflix or whatever, where it kind of draws you through starting at the beginning of Queen Elizabeth when uh, she took uh, reign there in England in the 50s, and of course... It's a mixture of uh, fiction and truth, but it still is entertaining. But it kind of created a lot of interest in that whole uh, royalty and, and what goes on there. And, and uh, one of the things as Americans is a little difficult for us to understand, that Brits, British, uh, the British Empire looks to what they call the crown, whoever, whether the queen or the king in that symbolic role in that position the way that we might look as Americans to the Constitution. It's kind of the fixed point of that culture and that society, the way we kind of, again, look to the Constitution to, to give us that stability and identity as a nation. Uh, those of British uh, history and the empire looks to the crown uh, to give them that stability. Now, one thing that King Charles uh, has said in many occasions and times, differentiating himself maybe from his mother and those who have gone on, that he said that he wanted to uh, modernize the, the royal house. And he said, I want to be a different kind of king. Now, I'm not sure all what that means, but he wanted to be a different king, whether that's more accessible to people and maybe to downsize all the uh, royalty and the money that is invested in that but uh, he wanted to be a different kind of king than had previously reigned. Well, I thought of that when I was thinking about John chapter 12, because John t- chapter 12, this morning, uh, beginning around verse 12, we see Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Now, oftentimes we read this uh, on Palm Sunday. Remember, John... Unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he is not giving kind of a chronological, sequential view of the life of Christ. We might look at those uh, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke as kind of a, a, a movie that, you know, that is walking through the life of Christ. John is more of a picture book. He has different pictures that he takes, snapshots that he takes, because remember what we read in chapter 20, verse 31, he is addressing aspects of the life of Christ because he's driving the readers or the hearers of this towards a specific meaning that they would come to faith in Jesus. We could say the Gospel of John is an evangelistic uh, booklet because that is its intent is to lead people to trust and faith in Christ. And so here we come in uh, in this process of the life of Christ uh, And I want us just to read verses 12 through 15. It says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, uh, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fulfilling prophecy from Zechariah, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now you may think, well, why a donkey's colt? Wouldn't a king, you know, be on some Mustang or some type of, you know, uh, warrior horse? Well, uh, interesting that uh, it was traditional for kings at different points of uh, uh, the ceremony to ride a young colt or a donkey, and it had a lot of symbol uh, symbolism concerning their humility, their commonality among the people. Uh, if you look in Solomon, when Solomon was inaugurated, Solomon the son of David, uh, his biological son, uh, that when Solomon was inaugurated and uh, in that ceremony, he came into Jerusalem riding on a young colt or a donkey. Uh, and so uh, that, that kind of is a common uh, thing to, to exude that symbolism. And so in tradition of a king, uh, Jesus did the same as he entered into Jerusalem. Jesus, in essence, is presenting himself, if we could say it that way, as king of Israel. Now, kind of a different sideline subject we won't get into, but Israel as a nation rejected his offer to be their king. He came unto his own, the Bible says, and his own what? Received him not. They they rejected his kingship. And so even though you have this entrance and this event, we know that within a short time, many in that same crowd are also going to be cheering, crucify him, give us Barabbas, give us a thief in exchange, but crucify Jesus. And so this morning... Along that theme, the title this morning is A Different Kind of King. I want us to notice in the remainder of chapter 12, three characteristics of this different kind of king. If you have your bulletin, you should have a little blue sheet that's a listener's guide to help you get more out of the message, and it enables you to follow along, and I encourage you To use that. Uh, Don't be a passive listener. Uh, Have your Bibles open or swipe them open or whatever it is that you do. But be engaged with the Word of God because the Word of God, this is everlasting, this is eternal. A lot of stuff we do and learn isn't going to matter next week. But the Word of God and the time that you have here today, you've made the investment to come. People say, Well, I want to learn the Bible. Well, guess what? We're going to do that. You You got the time, you're here. Open your Bible, open your tablet, open your phone or whatever, and and be engaged. We'll put many of the scriptures on the screen, but be engaged with the scriptures and the teaching this morning. And I want you to notice three characteristics along this title this morning, a different kind of king. Jesus was a different kind of king. And we're going to see three characteristics. Notice number one is that Jesus is a different kind of king because he does not get number one sidelined by cheering fans. We see some cheering fans. Look at verse 16 uh, through 18. It says that his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when John was glorified, or when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, that they had done these things to him. Now that was something John, put in there kind of as a commentary that at the time Jesus entered into Jerusalem, even his own disciples didn't make all these connections of fulfillment to Old Testament prophecy. But later, after the resurrection, after he ascended, then all of a sudden, now they were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and then they came to this full understanding concerning who Jesus was. Verse 17, Therefore the people who were there when he called Lazarus, out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. So where did this crowd, where did they come from? Well, in the previous chapter, they had witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So they were certainly drawn to this miraculous miracle of Jesus raising somebody from the dead, and that created a lot of interest and a lot of excitement. Verse 18, and he says, For this reason... What reason? The reason he just said in verse 17. They were there just because they saw Lazarus raised from the dead. I don't know about you, but somebody raises somebody from the dead, they will probably, they'll probably garner some tension, right? Naturally. So he says, for this reason, verse 18, the people also met him because they heard, they heard that he had done this sign. Hey, you got to come here this guy named Jesus, he raised somebody from the dead. What? He raised somebody from the dead? Yeah. You remember Lazarus? He was the brother of Mary and Martha. What? He died? I thought he was dead. No. You can, Jesus, where are, we, where are you going? We're going to see him. This, this man, maybe he'll raise somebody else from the dead. So there was naturally a great cheering crowd of fans. But Jesus, our premise this morning is he is a different Kind of king. I think the implication is that the popularity and enthusiasm was not because they understood Jesus as the true Messiah, as the Son of God. It was only because they were, maybe many of them were curiosity seekers. Maybe they were drawn to Jesus because of maybe what they could get from him. You remember when we covered John chapter 6, take your Bibles and kind of hang a left a little bit, keep something there in John 12, but go to John chapter 6. Remember in John chapter 6 is the great chapter, a long chapter, and it's when Jesus fed the multitude of over 5,000 people, fed them, uh, they didn't have anything to eat, and the miraculous multiplication of the loaves and the fish and the food there, and Jesus uh uh, noted that in verse 15 of John 6, six fifteen, it says uh, that after they ate this uh, food and the people uh, had their fill and there was leftovers, verse 15, therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself. I mean, they were so uh, like humans are. We tend to really gravitate towards any politician or anybody that's going to promise us free stuff. Right? I mean, here he had just fed them this meal, and what did they want to do? Hey, we need to elect this guy. We need to vote for this guy. And it says they were going to take him by force. They were going to not wait for whatever it is of how they were going to right that minute, they were going to be behind him to usher him in and make him king. And Jesus knew this, but he was a different kind of king. He was not going to be sidelined by the cheering fans. It says also in verse 26 that Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He understood their motive. He understood what was going on in their heart, verse thirty of John six. Therefore, they said to him, after all this miraculous sign, what did they say in verse thirty? They said, "Well, show us another sign. What sign will you perform then?" And the idea is like, do us, give us another trick. You see, begin because they had unbelief. Their heart, their heart, was in unbelief. And they were only looking to Jesus because of what they could get out of him. Only because of what he would do to perhaps meet some felt need in their life. Now certainly Jesus meets needs, but their heart in seeking him, their heart in following him, their heart even in wanting to make him king was what? Very selfish. Sometimes the Lord reveals our motives for following Christ usually when crisis comes. And it really shows us and tests us, why do I believe what I believe? Why have I, do I really trust in Jesus? Not just when things are going well, but do I trust in Jesus when things are going pretty lousy? Where is my faith? Am I just a cheering fan? Well, Jesus spoke the truth in verse 65 of John 6. It's a great chapter. I'd encourage you to read it. And he said something very radical after a lot of tough teaching. And again, you know, Jesus, Jesus uh, really didn't was never really good at winning friends and influencing people. He he made things really difficult, not because he was making things difficult to be difficult, but he was a truth teller. And he said in verse sixty five, "Therefore, I have said unto you that no one can." Can is a word that speaks of ability. No one has the ability to come to me, how, unless it has been granted to him by my Father. In verse 66, at the culmination of some very specific and pointed teaching, the Bible says that from that time, many of his disciples, this is not talking about the twelve disciples, it's using disciples and kind of a general followers, many of the followers went back and walked with him no more. And if you read verse 67, which I don't think I have on the screen, he addresses specifically the 12. So in other words, he weeded out the crowd. Why? Now, I don't know about you, but if I was one of the disciples and I was like, hey, this is what we're here to do. This is what this thing is all about. I'd be like, Jesus, what are you doing? This is not the way to... Get a following, you know, be nicer, be more appealing, you know. Uh, 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 you know, listen, you've got this popularity, write it. But see, Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And I want a king who's a truth teller. I want a king who's not going to be sidelined by cheering fans. You know, politicians oftentimes get sidelined because they get sucked in because of popularity or they get sucked in because of uh, adoring fans and they begin to make compromises and they begin to take positions on things because they know that if they don't do something or they don't sign off on a particular agenda or whatever it is, then all of a sudden they're going to lose their audience. Jesus was not concerned about that. Jesus wanted their hearts more than he wanted their votes. You hear what I said? He wanted their heart. He wants our hearts. He doesn't want you just to be an adoring fan of Jesus. He wants you to be a follower of Jesus that receives Jesus for all that he truly is not just because He's going to make your way happy and prosperous and give you good parking spots at Publix. No, He is a Savior in the valleys and on the mountaintops. He's a Savior in the good times and the bad times. He's a Savior that we embrace Him for who He is. But this crowd, Jesus was not going to be seduced by that. You know, I thought of King Saul in the Old Testament, the first king of Israel. And among many areas of fault with King Saul is that King Saul... Often and many times what ended his kingship was that his heart was more desirous to serve the whims of the people than to honor God. You remember the time, if you remember your Old Testament story, that Samuel was late, they're getting ready to have this big battle, and Samuel the prophet was coming and it was the law said that only the prophet who at that time functioned as a prophet and priest to offer the sacrifice before Israel went into the battle. And Solomon, or not Solomon, Samuel, got hung up on I-4 around Champion's Gate. And he was late. And Saul, the Bible says, if you read the passage, that because of fear of the people getting restless, he took it upon himself to do something the law forbid. You see, again, when you start... When you start being more interested in what people think and what people say than what Jesus says, there's always going to be consequences and trouble. You know, Satan has a particular use of this particular temptation. Uh, And again, you can look it up. But in Matthew 4, Matthew 4 and Luke 4 tell the same account. You remember Jesus was in the wilderness and the desert and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights and he was fasting And the Bible says that Satan visited him during this time. And you remember three different occasions during that 40 days and 40 nights that Satan tempted the Son of God. Remember he said, first of all, I mean, you're fasting 40 days, um, and I forget what day, some of you medical people can tell me, but it's very close to the 40 day, maybe after 30 days, that starvation where your body's organs start to begin to consume themselves because of starvation. So it wasn't like, you and I, that we just, you know, get hungry because we drive by Chick-fil-A, he was, there was intense hunger, intense hunger. Now, I just lost some of you when I mentioned that, all right? But hey, they're closed on Sunday, so relax, all right? So he said, Satan said, well, you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. And then he said a third one, the third one, He said, if you will just bow and worship me, show them all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, if you would just bow and worship me, I'll give these all to you. Well, that was a phony offer because they weren't his to give. But, But the second one was he said, if you will just leap off the pinnacle of the temple, which was the highest peak point of the temple, then Satan quoted scripture. You know, he can quote scripture too. Wrongly, but he can quote scripture, and he said, quoted the scripture from the psalm that the angels will not allow anything to dash your foot, and that in the essence of the temptation was that if you will leap off the pinnacle of the temple, the angels will certainly secure your safety and bring you safely down to ground, kind of like a parachute, just softly landing on the ground. But here's the fuller implication, okay is that you can avoid the cross. Because people will see you're the Messiah and rally to your cause and you won't have to go through all that stuff. All that rejection, all that suffering. For these 12 guys, are they really worth I mean whatever Satan layered on him, but see again, what was the what was the offer? was if you will just succumb to the cheering fans, you can avoid the messy cross. Well, Jesus is a different kind of king, and I'm thankful that he did not succumb to that temptation. But notice, secondly, of Jesus being a different kind of king, does not, secondly, get sidetracked by confused followers. Does not get sidetracked by confused followers followers. I read earlier uh, verse 16 and I'm not sure if it's up there but I'll just read it in verse uh, in chapter 12 verse 16 about how the disciples that when Jesus wrote into Jerusalem uh, that it says John kind of inserted a little bit of commentary when he was writing, meaning that at the time this happened that, that the twelve didn't totally grasp the prophetic significance of what was taking place, But afterwards, after they received the Holy Spirit, afterwards that the Lord opened their eyes, he says, then they understood. So you had confusion among his own group. And then you had confusion among the crowd. Uh, Look at verse 20 of John 12. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the the feast. They're non-Jews, they're Greeks, But they were God-fearers that embraced the God of Israel that came to the feast. And then these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, answered these Greeks, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, verse 24, I say to you, that unless a grain of wheat falls unto the ground and dies, it remains alone. And if it dies, it produces much grain. What is he beginning to talk about? He's beginning to talk about that within this timeline, within approximately a week, Jesus would be crucified. And he's beginning to tell them about the Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to be crucified. Keep reading down to verse 27. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Skip down to verse 34. It says, the people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? That's just a term meaning crucified, lifted up. That's what he's saying, and that's what they understood. Who is this Son of Man? Here's the deal. Remember, Jesus is a different kind of king who does not get sidetracked by confused followers. The mindset of the Jews in that first century had a different understanding of what the Messiah, we've talked about this several times, of what the Messiah should be like. Now, you know the story, remember, of Peter when uh, in Matthew 16, I believe, that when uh, Peter uh, spoke about, or not Matthew 16, but uh, when Jesus talked about how he must go to begin to talk about when he'd go to the cross, and remember when the apostle Peter said, God forbid, and then Jesus looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have the mind of the things of God. You see, again, Satan's plan was to keep Jesus uh, from the cross. And, and, and I'm not sure Satan doesn't really understand anything because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. So he's just kind of throwing everything up against the wall. One minute he wants to kill him, one minute he wants to keep him from the cross. So, uh, but the point is is that, that Peter had the common understanding of what the people thought of the Messiah That this idea of a Messiah that would be crucified, that would allow himself to be arrested, to be allowed to be, allow himself to be killed, that was foreign. Their concept of Messiah was a political messiah, a messiah that was gonna come in and a military strength and power and Overturn Rome because Israel is under the domination of Rome. Their concept of Messiah was a military political leader, kind of in the tradition of King David, that would restore Israel back to its military worldwide prominence and glory. You see this even in the book of Acts. You remember after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, that they are with the resurrected Jesus before he ascends permanently to heaven. And what is the burning question they want to ask him? The burning question they want to ask him. Acts chapter 1, I think around verse 16 or so, they want to ask him, Lord, now Jesus has been resurrected, he's demonstrated his divinity, his power, and they say, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Why? Because that's that's what they thought the Messiah was going to be. Now don't get me wrong. And don't miss this. Jesus did not contradict them or rebuke them and said, what are you talking about? There's not going to be a restoration of Israel. That's, whole, that's passe. We don't do that anymore. We're going to do everything through the church now. He didn't say that. What did he say? It's not for you to know the times of the seasons. There it is on the screen. It's not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. He did not say there was not going to be a restoration to Israel. He was saying it's not the time yet. See, again, what it, what's happening is that like many of the disciples and followers, they have a confused understanding of who the Messiah is. And so the point is, is that Jesus is a different kind of king because he does not get sidetracked by their false expectations of what the Messiah and who he is. As I said, human leaders oftentimes bend towards the expectations of the people. Politicians that want to run. All these people that are going to run for office and all that. And uh, I don't know about you, but I am dreading the next year and a half. I just, oh. oh all right, let's don't run a good moment here. Um, you know, they, they have focus groups. Like, before they ever come out with new and improved Cheetos... It's one of my favorite snacks I can't eat anymore. But, you know, they'll have a focus group to determine how to market these, how to package it, the flavor, all those. So long before they ever advertise and come out, they've already kind of done a focus group to kind of get the opinions and input of the people. That's what a lot of politicians do. They don't just go out and have, you know, some agenda. The idea of just somebody like Lincoln-Douglas Debates getting up there and just speaking for hours on Policy and convictions, and like, that's, that's, that's ancient history. They go out there because they know what the whims of the people are. Oh, these are hot-button issues, and this is a certain demographic. You know, churches have built other churches based on that mindset. They'll find out what the certain demographic in a certain community is. You know, okay, we got mostly families, 25 to 35, that's got two and a half kids. I've never understood the half-kid. Poor child, you know. All right. But statistically. And then all of a sudden they find out, okay, maybe one of them is college edu- educated. Here's a certain amount of how much salary they make. So we are going to develop and devise a church marketed for that group. It's just kind of instead of a church built where in the New Testament you have people from all races and backgrounds... Coming together, what's our unity? Not because we have a similar demographic, but our unity is that all ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come before God as sinners needing a Savior. That's our commonality. That's why we have unity is based around Christ, not our politics or our ethnicity or our financial background. But see, Jesus did not get sidetracked by their confusion. He didn't mold and shape and change his identity to meet the whims of these cheering fans that were confused followers. Jesus said in John 6:38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. He was crystal clear on his mission. Jesus said in John 14:6. He said, "I Am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. He's a different kind of king. Hebrews twelve, two helps us saying that Jesus, even to the death on the cross, tells us that looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the what? The joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what his mission was, and he was not A king or a leader that was going to allow himself to get sidetracked by confused followers. Unfortunately, even though he didn't get sidetracked by confused followers, um, notice them a little ahead for the media people, but uh, look at uh, John 12 verse uh, 42 and 43. It says nevertheless, even among the rulers many believed in him. so even among the higher ups there were those that believed him in him. I think it's fair to say Nicodemus, who was a very high up Pharisee member of the Sanhedrin which was kind of their Supreme court, uh, evidence that he was a believer, but he wasn't part of the twelve. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they held the power and the sway, these rulers did not confess belief, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they what? Loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. You see, Jesus didn't get sidetracked, but unfortunately some of his followers did. Sometimes you and I get sidetracked. We get sidetracked from who Jesus is and what our calling is as followers of Him. So notice, thirdly, not only does Jesus, a different kind of king, He doesn't get sidelined by cheering fans, He doesn't get sidetracked by confused followers, but notice, thirdly, He, does not side- he doesn't sidestep the call to a committed Faith. He doesn't sidestep the truth of what it means to have a committed faith, and I want to look at these five declarations, if you would, made by Jesus concerning what committed faith looks like in verses uh, in the verses 44 through the end of the chapter. Five declarations, and in your handout, you've got a place that you can write these there, and these are five essential uh, areas that a person who is going to have genuine Faith in Christ. These are five areas that are essential uh, that you have. Uh, notice number one in verse 44 and 45. Number one is concerning Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity. Verse 44, and then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. In other words, you see me, you see God. You need to understand the true identity of Jesus. People say, well, we all just should, you know, talk about believe in Jesus. The question is, what Jesus do you believe in? Do you believe in the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses? The Jesus of the Mormons? The Jesus of, you know, where he's the Jesus consciousness of of, of those that, you know, the, the, the new age and the reincarnation, that the Jesus consciousness is something we all can partake in. In other words, a lot of people have hijacked the name of Jesus, but it does not mean it is an identity of the true Jesus. That's the reason what we're doing today, we're walking through the gospel of John, we're walking through evidence that speaks about Jesus's true identity is so important. Listen, if you're going to go to France, you better have the right passport or they will not let you in. If you're going as an American, you better make sure you have your passport or rather if you're coming to the United States, you better make sure you have the correct passport of whatever it is country because if you have a false passport, if you have a bogus passport, guess what? You're not going to be allowed entry. You better make sure that you have the correct identity of Jesus, of who He is. That, you're, that the truth, that the foundation of your belief in the person is trusting in the true person of Jesus. That you're not leaning your ladder up against the wrong wall. Notice secondly, not only Jesus' identity, but in verse 46, Jesus' exclusivity. The exclusivity. He's not just a way, as we read in John 14, 6. He is the way. He is the exclusive only way. The apostles understood this clearly right out of the gate when they began to preach the gospel in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4 verse 12, they said, there is no other name under heaven by which men, people, humans must be saved except the name of Christ. Now as Americans, we kind of have this foundational belief in our American system of freedom of religion and that's that's fine in a civil government but again jesus is not just he's not running a civil government in other words in our american system you have the legal right to worship whatever and whoever you want if you want to have a religion based around a chair go for it the government will protect your right i will protect you you have that right as americans But that does not mean that all belief systems have parity, that we're all on an equal basis. Jesus was doing something very politically incorrect when he began to talk about that he is the exclusive way. Do you remember the scripture we read in John 6, I believe verse 46, where he said that no one can come to me except the Father grants? See, it's coming to him. He says... I have come. I have come as a light. I'm not just a light among many lights. I'm not just like, you know, the Baha'i religion where they kind of just, they believe everybody, everybody has something to offer, whether it's Muhammad or Krishna or Buddha or Jesus. Everybody just kind of, and it's kind of like a spoke around a wheel. Everybody, you know, everybody, you'll hear this phrase, everybody's just seeking God in their own way. Romans 3 says there's none that seek after God. Oh, they're seeking benefits that the true God can give. Peace, freedom of guilt, freedom of shame, forgiveness of their past. They're seeking all those benefits, but we are not naturally inclined to seek after the true God. That's why God had to send somebody, Jesus, to make the way clear and to make a path. So Jesus says, I have come as a light into the world. And he says, whoever believes in me, not just whoever is sincere, whoever just has faith. Sometimes you're going to hear politicians. He's a man of faith. What does that mean? Faith in what? Faith the sun's going to rise? What does that mean? No. Believes in me is very pointed and very specific. The exclusivity of Jesus Notice thirdly, we must have faith in Jesus' provision. Verse 47 through 48. And if anyone hears my word and does not believe, he said, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. You see, I don't need to, Jesus is saying, I, I don't need to give judgment because they, he said in another place, there already are under judgment judgment. In fact, look over to John chapter 3, keep something there in 12, but just go over to John chapter 3, just hang a left, turn in your Bible, swipe, whatever it is, 316 through 18. Now we know, we know John 316, right? Thank goodness for the man that used to be with the multicolor wig holding signs at the football game. How many of you remember that guy? I don't know what happened to him. They probably got sick of him and didn't allow him to do that. But John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in Scripture. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. How about I get in the right chapter and that will be helpful. For God so loved the world that he gave his, what, only, only exclusive begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now read verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Verse 18. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. You see, every person already stands under the judgment of God, not because they reject Jesus, but because they are sinners born into sin. A person goes to hell not because they reject Jesus, but because they reject the offer of Jesus because they are sinners. That's what the Bible says, that by nature we are children of wrath. We are sinful. We bring nothing to God except our sin. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need a perfect Savior. That's the reason we need the provision, the perfect provision. You see, in a moment we're going to celebrate the provision of God at the Lord's table. We celebrate what God has done. The reject the, the that God has made the provision. As talks about the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, giving pictures to that Old Testament imagery of those sacrifices that were part of the Old Testament dispensation that have changed now. We're not under that dispensation, but we are under the purpose and plan where Jesus, all those things were previews of coming attractions and were completely fulfilled in Christ. That's the reason we don't go backwards to go back and become Old Testament Jews. No, we stand under the new covenant of the benefits of the new covenant In Christ Jesus. And that's why when we as Christians, the table of the Lord is for Christians, celebrates this provision of Christ. It celebrates the sufficiency of Christ alone. We sang uh, about that my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and His righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean... On Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. The provision is the only provision that God has made. Not by works not by your good deeds, not by your infant baptism, not by your dedication in the church, not because your uncle was a Baptist preacher, not because of anything other that you stand before the Lord, why should I allow you into my heaven? Because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Why did the thief on the cross, why was he allowed? You know, there was, Jesus was crucified between two criminals. One rejected. One said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And all Jesus said was, Okay, you're in. Why did the thief on the cross when somebody said, how did you get in? Because the man in the middle said I could be here. That's the only answer that matters in eternity is because the man in the middle said I could be here. And that's faith in the provision. Notice fourthly, is Jesus speaks about His authority. Jesus' authority In verse 49, Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but on him who, but the Father who sent me, gave me a command. You see, Jesus is operating on the command from the Father. To reject Jesus is to reject the Father. Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the, Jesus God of every God is the way to know God. You want to know God? Stop searching. Stop looking. Jesus is. Is the way, Jesus is the answer. Remember when some of us grew up and they'd see the stickers and the whatever? Jesus is the answer. Guess what? He's still the answer. He's the answer. Jesus operates on the authority. In fact, that we didn't read it, but if you want to go back and read verse twenty-seven through thirty-one, that when Jesus spoke about this hour that has come, he's, there was a voice from heaven that spoke. And that affirmed Jesus' identity. Remember a voice when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. There was another voice that some of the disciples heard on the mountain of transfiguration. Remember when he was, they saw a glimpse of his glory. He was there pictured, or not pictured, but he was with Moses and Elijah. And, and, and they saw him in his glory and they heard the voice of the father. This is my son. So that voice just underscored and affirmed who he was and the authority. And notice... The last commitment is Jesus' salvation or his redemption. And again, all of these kind of string together like fine pearls. Verse 50, and I know that his command is everlasting life. Jesus, as we saw earlier in John 10, 10, he said, the thief comes to kill, rob, and destroy. He said, but I've come that you would have life. He is a life giver. Wasn't that what John is writing in John 20, 31? These things I write that you may believe and that by believing, not just intellectual gymnastics, but that by believing you will have life in his name. What do you mean by life? That means what we have before the life of Christ is we have death. As Jesus was Physically resurrected, we spiritually are resurrected unto new life. That's what he told Nicodemus in John 3. You must be born again, not confusing like, how can I be born a second time? But there is a complete transformation and change that occurs to the new believer in Christ. Some of you may long for that. You want that. You want to change. You've tried yoga. You've tried aerobics. You've tried this religion. You've tried this thing and that thing changing a hairstyle, changing an outfit, changing jobs, changing marriages, whatever it is. And the answer of the change and the transformation is you need Christ. You need Christ in your life. What do I need? What do I need to do? You need to believe. That's what Jesus said. Believe. Believe that He's the only Son of God. Believe that Jesus is the only way to God. The only provision. Believe that only Jesus and Him alone has paid for my sin debt. That His death on the cross wasn't just a runaway prophet that got Himself killed. No. He was crucified By the predetermined counsel of God. Romans 3 says that God offered him. God offered him as a sacrifice for sin. And only in Jesus can I have eternal life.